everyone. This is Alan Schimmel. Welcome to CISO Talk. In this episode, we're going to take a, a deeper dive into the healthcare vertical, but with the lens of ransomware or through the lens of ransomware. Uh, for those who don't know, or maybe even those who do, of course, this past week, last week, we, we saw a new thread on coming out specifically aimed at hospitals and so forth in the, in the U.S. around ran ransomware. You know, some have said it's state-sponsored. Others said, no, not really the issue. We'll, we'll talk about it. But certainly during these COVID months, as I call them, COVID times, we have s s seen some in uptick in ransomware, or maybe we haven't, and it's just I'm more sensitive to it. We have a great panel to talk about it today. We invited back some of the folks from our last panel on healthcare cyber, and, and we have a new addition. I'm going to introduce her first, and that is Wendy Whitmore uh, from the IBM X-Force team. Wendy, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Hi, happy to be here today. Great. Wendy, you want to just give people a little background? Yeah, absolutely. So hi, everyone. I lead the IBM X-Force team, which specializes in incident response and threat intelligence, as well as training our clients in how to immersively respond to breaches. Uh, my background is uh, with the U.S. Air Force and with Mandiant with CrowdStrike. So I've been doing response for a long time and excited to talk about ransomware and threat intel today for sure. Great. Next up, we have the CEO and founder of Accelerated Strategies Group, Mitchell Ashley. Mitchell, if you want to say hello. You bet. Good to be here with you and running Accelerated Strategies Group. We focus on uh, cybersecurity as well as digital transformation and DevOps and some other areas. So and Alan and I go way back uh, working in the security industry in the early 2000s with uh, a different attack prevention software. Several different ones. Several, <laughs> as it turns out. That was part of the problem. But anyway, <laughs> next up is our friend Julian Waits from uh, Devo. Julian, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, Alan. Uh, first of all, happy to be here participating in this discussion. I think it's very salient to where we are in the market today, especially in light of uh, COVID-19. I am the general manager and uh, public sector vice president for Devo. Devo is a you know log and security analytics product. Our goal is to help you catch the adversary before they get you. Bottom line. Absolutely and worthy. Next up, we have Ben Carr. Ben CISO with Qualys. Ben. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Hey, uh, Ben Carr, CISO for Qualys. I've uh, been here about six months. Um, I think everyone should be pretty familiar with Qualys and what we do in the industry, but um, you know, fairly. Uh, a good security vendor in the market, been around for quite a while. Great. And then uh, bringing, you know, anchoring us is my co-host here on CISO Talk, uh, Matt Newfield. Matt is the CISO at Unisys. Matt, hello. Welcome. Always a pleasure, Alan. Thank you. And thank you to the panelists for uh, joining us today. Thanks. All right. So guys and gals, let's, let's start the conversation. Am I crazy or have we seen... A, a huge uptick in ransomware since March and COVID and the lockdown and working remotely. Wendy, I would imagine you, you would have some stats on that from x -Force. Yeah, I've got a point of view on it, Alan, for sure. So happy to kick <laughs> us off. Uh, the answer, you know, is, is I think yes and yes, right? We've seen a lot of increased activity across the board. 
But as um, uh, so in that it, that range, it's right from nation state activity into research into, um, you know, the supply chain related to COVID testing, vaccines, the logistical supply uh, distribution of that. But as it relates to ransomware, um, there, I, I guess the way to start it is what I think we're seeing a lot of is not necessarily like an advance in the malware specifically or the ways that attackers are doing it, but we're seeing them become very advanced in how they're um, conducting business processes around these attacks. So what I mean by that is that it used to be these ransomware actors, which are largely cyber criminal groups, right? Lar largely not nation state actors. Um, it used to be that the, you know one attack group would go after uh, a full life cycle of an attack. So if you're you know Corporation A, for example, and that's your target, they would you know bring in the malware, they would uh, do the command and control infrastructure, they would then wage the attack themselves. Now they've gotten really smart at saying, well, hey, I'm going to actually outsource the experts. So I'm going to let someone else develop the code for the ransomware. I don't need to deal with that at this point. I can either rent it or buy it from them. I can also rent the infrastructure with which the communications occur and to wage the attack. So if I can outsource those, then as an attacker, I can really then focus in on my end target. And what that means is that once they get inside the environment with initial stages of attacks, uh, you know, largely still through things like social engineering, phishing, that type of uh, initial infiltration vector, then they can spend a lot more time actually focused on how can I get to the most interesting data in an environment and determine what I can encrypt that's going to cause the most damage if I do it. And then once I do that, so what we've seen is these increased dwell times, right? It used to be kind of an average of like five to 10 days for these ransomware attacks. Now it's in weeks to months that these actors are staying in environments before they actually start detonating the ransomware malware. And that means they're collecting intelligence the whole time. And they've also then changed the payment streams to where it's not just, I'm going to steal your data, encrypt it, and then ask you to pay me money to get it back. Now I'm going to do that, but I'm also going to then publicly extort you and say, I'm going to publicly name and shame you. And so you can pay me not to do that as well. And then most recently, we've seen also a denial of service attacks related to it. So here's a third payment stream of, hey, by the way, I know I already got you on these two areas, but I'm also going to conduct an out of service attack on your environment as well and take you offline. So we're really seeing kind of the, uh, multiple ways that organizations now are having to deal with these actors. Great, agreed. Um, the rest of my panel, do you, do you want to comment on anything Wendy said, or should we jump from there? I would think I would concur with that. I mean, I, I've seen numbers as high as, you know, in, in the third quarter, as high as a 50% increase over the first two quarters of the year. So it's been a, really a significant jump um, in ransomware. I think, uh, you know, the targeting the healthcare industry right now is particularly questionable, um, given everything that's going on, right? Um, but it, it, there, there does seem to be a market increase in, the, in those areas. Um, so, probably, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, Julian, you go. Well, I was just going to say, I was going to agree with everything that's been said. And, and I know the focus today is healthcare, but I would tell you there's been this, uh, a dramatic increase in financial services environments yeah. as well. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Matt, I'm wondering what you guys are seeing over at Unisys. Uh, you know, I'd love to be able to add on and throw something that, that others haven't said, but I we're all saying the same thing and and I, I think we'll switch the topic here but you know it, it has been it's very interesting to watch these these increase in tax in attacks against you know really susceptible organizations such as healthcare that are trying to do good for the uh 
the country and the world. But it, it, it opens up a lot of questions, Alan, that I think you're going to jump into, like that, with some of the laws that are changing. You know, Wendy and Ben and Julian, you hear about these laws, and Mitch, um, where you can't actually pay some of these threats. Yeah, I think you're referencing the uh, the OFAC advice that came out on the 1st of October. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, And, and how is that going to change? And there was another set of articles that have come out recently where there are a lot of organizations, both state organizations as well as cyber organizations that are saying you should never pay anyway because if they say pay me and we'll delete your data well how do you know they deleted your data and why would they delete your data and you know what's going to stop them from exposing that data later on and and you know there's been talk i hear in some of the federal circles where they they're like the only reason you would pay to keep that data out is to try to hide the fact that you had a breach so how does that tie into a lot of what we're seeing i think could be a good conversation Alan. Yeah, and I, I wonder in a way if that OFAC advisory, if, if that was almost in a way, I mean, you know, in retrospect, I look at it and say, well, was there some air cover there, right? Was, was that an effort to kind of tamp this down with the increase of ransomware, you know, the publicity around it? And, you know, I think, you know, uh, I, I, I've been asked in the past by, by boards, like, do, do we pay? Like, what's your advice as a CISO? What's your advice as an expert in the area? And I think, you know, typically it's always been, you know, that standard terrorism response of, you know, we don't pay, you know, we don't pay ransomware terrorist uh, demands. But at the same time, I think some people look at it and say, is it just less costly to get out of it, right? And I think it may be, you know, I, I don't want to ever, ever think that the, you know, <laughs> Department of the Treasury is, is thinking uh, in, in a necessarily a super smart direction, but maybe that was some type of air cover to be able to say, you know, in these public incidences, they're happening, you know, we're not allowed to, we're just not allowed to pay, right? I mean, that's, that'd be a good way to tamp it down in, in some, some aspect. I just wonder point. if that's going to manifest. I think you know, there's also just the, the need to get back to business, right? Getting yeah. data encrypted so you can begin operations, stop losing money, whatever the impact is. That, that's also got to be, of course, a big motivation for us. Yeah. That's always been the cybersecurity, right? That, guys, yeah. that's always, look, I remember seeing reports 20 years ago when we were seeing, well, 15 years ago, when we were seeing the big retail breaches before Target, right? Yeah. Old time retail breaches where the attitude was, well, this could have been pretty easily stopped. But from the retail industry, I represented about 0.05 of an impact on revenue. And it's going to cost us about 0 0.10 to really implement security. Screw it. For a 0 0.05, we write it off. As a rounding error. Do right. we fix the you gas know, tank or do we weather the yeah. lawsuits? That'll cover and the and gas for too long, right? or for too long, that was a real security. You know, that was the problem we faced in security as CISOs. We didn't even have CISOs then. As, as you know, <laughs> as, as security folks, that was that was a problem, right? It was, yeah. is, it, is, the, is, the, is the fix more costly than the, the one I'm fixing? But the, the problem now, real quick, Alan, and I'll pass it back to the, the group here. When you talk about in the past that, that breach, that ransomware stopped us from delivering business, right? Whatever company that may be, that's one thing. But when you're talking about, and let's go back to the original topic here, healthcare you know, and medical records, mm. and, and you're a hospital that maybe had the money, maybe didn't have the money, maybe had the expertise, maybe didn't have the expertise to prevent it. And everybody's an armchair quarterback in the cyber world. You know, they always come in and go, why didn't you? How did you not notice? 
But now you've got people's personal medical records out there. And, and I can see, and I've been part of conversations where like, I want to pay the ransom to protect the people. We're going to expose, we have to come out. But I, want to, I don't want their medical records out there. And making that illegal to do so potentially could open up some very interesting, I'll just leave it at conversations. And I don't, I don't and, know. And I, I'd highlight even a, a step up above that, Matt. It's like, if you think about from a medical side, I think, you know, if we go back in history and look, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was a lot of concern and there still is significant concern over power grid, right? And mm -hmm. the implications that could happen and what could happen if the power grid went down. But I, I, I want to say it was maybe a month ago, there was a, a report out of the first patient that had actually potentially had, had a health impact that died as sure. a result of a cyber incident. And I think, you know, if you, from a healthcare perspective, one could think there's nefarious purposes behind that of like, the, if you actually cause an impact where it's injuring a person's health, well-being, or life, like, does, does the pay or not pay thing go out the window at that point for a healthcare institution, right? Was, and that's, yeah, that's really where some of the situation may get to. Yeah, that well, situation Julian, too was actually in Dusseldorf. And the patient yeah. died because he had to be moved to another hospital. He couldn't get the services where he was going. So it was just just be, be, being available, more or less. Something happened while he was there. That's pretty Julian? Julian, yeah, you have to mention. My point was, is, and there's no insurance for that, right? Uh, can you get insurance no. for ransomware? Of course. But can you get insurance for, you know, ransomware to ultimately cause someone to lose their life no that's like insuring the entire business and so they it's it's i agree with ben that i think the irs you know department of treasury provided this air cover but it's i would i consider it unethical for a health institution yeah. not to look at the health of their patients first mm -hmm. yeah so let me let me let me put the cherry on this and we'll we'll you know continue we can't have this conversation in the vacuum like this is normal times. This isn't normal times. We're in a worldwide pandemic with ICU beds at a premium. And today's ICU beds, what makes them an ICU bed? Well, besides there's oxygen and everything, the technology in there, they don't run without great technology and telemetry. That's what makes a great ICU, right? And when you're talking about encryption, and being able to shut down this kind of stuff now, it's almost, it's a guttural instinct, I think, for humanity to say, what kind of scum would do this during now? During now, right? I get it. You don't never miss an opportunity to miss a crisis. But to do this now, that, that I think is what, yeah, in normal times, it's a terrible thing to do. And now it almost rises to a crime against humanity to me. Yeah, but, right. I, but I think and, a lot and, and of this. Go ahead. Well, I don't want to cut you off, but I, I do. Think no, more I and said more my piece. It, I think more and more of it is becoming uh, nation state related. It, you, you think know, so? For, well, yeah, I think for our adversaries, is a great time to really take us to our knees. Well, I, I think there's two points to that, Julian. It's like I, I think from a nation state, and I'd be interested in Wendy's perspective on this. Is that you know. There's twofold to that. There's one is the political and the, you know, the, the nation state against nation state kind of, uh, you know, issues. But then there's also, I think, nation states looking at a way to monetize, right? Looking at right. non-traditional ways to monetize stuff. And they're, th those both raise the, raise the impact for this and raise the likelihood of this happening. And I think when you look at healthcare specifically, 
I don't think it's a secret to anybody, hopefully not here, but it, probably anybody listening, is that healthcare's typically been underinvested, right, On from a, from a cyber perspective. It's significantly so, right? And they've, I think they've looked at it from a HIPAA leakage violation perspective. They've looked at it at patient records, right? And I think we need to elevate that discussion out of it's not just patient records, right? It, it is patient sustainability and survivability in, in some cases. Yeah, I, I think following on to what Ben said, yeah, so a couple of things with healthcare and why it's being targeted in particular, right? I mean, uh, again, I think most of these attacks, the majority of them, the intent is to make money, right? So any, and people are more desperate than they have been before in today's economy, right, with the workforce having shifted due to the pandemic to be able to generate income. So healthcare providers are a really susceptible target for ransomware attacks because of the fact that they're much more likely to pay a ransom to get their systems back up and running, right? They, their um, systems are also more vulnerable or their networks are more vulner vulnerable because of the fact that they have a lot of older unsupported uh, medical devices running. And then as they have shifted towards, you know, the need for economic, uh, excuse me, electronic communications and hosting of all that data, it, you can kind of see these worlds coinciding, right? As like a train wreck is coming and how are we gonna get out of this, right? So uh, I think for those reasons, healthcare is a, is a target for these attacks, attackers, it becomes really effective. I certainly don't disagree that this is, uh, you know, this is incredibly uh, dishonorable and certainly criminal in cases, absolutely in the case of the uh, German individual who lost their life due to these attacks. I think the unfortunate reality though, is that we're gonna continue to see these types of attacks be monetized. And, you know, today I talked about kind of three different ways they're monetized. We can probably talk two months from now and, and there's a few more that um, are gonna be uncovered before we really have an effective way to stop them at scale. And what makes all this worse, if you really wrap everything that I've heard, you also put in, if you think of a normal corporation, it's, it, there's programs where you can train because you, know, you hear companies like Unisys, we do security and everything we do, and you can make it that foundational. But as we've discussed, Alan, the last time we, we had a healthcare conversation, if you look at a majority of the people that work there, their number one, focus is making sure their patients are okay, right? It's, it's the delivery of healthcare. Anything you put in their way, security, anything that slows down the ability to get the scalpel, to get them on an operating table, to provide that necessary care, to get them to a hospital, it, legacy was considered a detractor, right? It, it went against that Hippocratic Oath. And, and you know, Ben, you, you said this a little bit, and Wendy, uh, you were just touching on it, but changing that mentality in these organizations to make security and the security of our patients, the security of those medical records to be part of that foundational mindset, I think is very critical, but very hard to do. And well, the other you, oh. add to that, the fact that most hospitals aren't highly profitable. So yeah. to your point, you're thinking about the next heart rate measuring machine or some device to do surgeries more efficiently rather than thinking about security. And so it's also an issue of access to funding uh, for many uh, health institutions. And it, it's right. kind of circular, Julian. So I, that's exactly what I was going to touch on is if you think about from a funding perspective, like a lot of the devices, it's kind of this circular problem where a lot of the devices they have are really old, like we would consider really old, right? You know, so, sometimes 20 year old devices in the environment. And the problem is they weren't built 
for security, right? And so they're not patched, they're not updated, they're not fixed, there's no funding to do that. And so those are the devices that aren't, they're not scanned, they're not, you know, secured, they're, they're treated as kind of like, don't touch this device, because if it goes down, it'll cause impact to patients. Yet right. at the same time, that makes them naturally the most fragile devices, that they're the most sensitive to having impact to patients when somebody attacks it from a cyber perspective. And so getting out of that, that cycle, that logic, it, we, we have to change that, that paradigm. And, and really, you know, it, it goes back, it's the same thing in IoT, it's the same thing in healthcare, it's, it's making sure that we're addressing this root capacity, root capability to be able to secure devices when we're, you know, when they need connectivity. But I was wondering the, I was just wondering in the short term or the next couple of years with it's a target rich environment, right? Yeah. Capacity of ICU beds is going down, more people are getting sick. Guess what? Probably the ransom amounts are gonna go up too as well. So it seems like in the next I don't know, at least, at least for the foreseeable future, there's going to be a lot of hurt as this, as we see more increases of this kind of an attack. Well, and we can't just focus on tomorrow. We, you know, it, it goes to conversations we've had in the past. You know, Ben, you bring up a good point, and Julian, you were touching on this as well. It's so who ultimately is responsible? The hospitals aren't making a lot of money. They're buying the equipment. The manufacturers are not developing equipment that can be secured. You know, we've all seen a lot of the agreements and licensing for this equipment has operating systems that can't be patched. If you touch the yeah. OS, you're in trouble, or there may not even be a mechanism to provide an upgrade, even right. though they're sitting on a, a modern operating system at the time, um, you know, without causing problems or, you know, a lot of money. You know, we deal with people who bought these large devices and, you know, if you patch it, you void the warranty. You void everything, and it's it's so. Who's responsible? The hospital has to deal with that. Why aren't we holding the manufacturers of these these devices more accountable for the vulnerabilities they're introducing into our healthcare systems? I, I, yeah, so I, I think that's critical in healthcare, but it's critical across almost every industry, right? Like I I did that when I was at when I was in a role at a at you know public companies where you know we would deal with vendors and they would come in and we would just that was part of the policy. Like you had to meet you know, security protocols and policies and the ability to uh, patch or address things within a certain time frame, or you were a higher, a much higher risk threshold, or potentially we wouldn't do business with you, right? I mean, it's, I think people have to start taking those approaches to dealing with companies, because I, I think that's the reason they're not, we're not holding the, the manufacturers of the devices responsible for actually taking due care in a long-term sustainability model. Yeah, but I, I think until there are more people and I hate to say this, who are injured or impacted by this, there's not going to be much change in the... Always the same story, man. Yeah, yeah. it really, really is. Yeah. It, it's, it's Until the public outcry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you got... You know, I learned this early on in the security. So still secure. The company Mitchell and I did together was my first pure play. <clears throat> we didn't call it cyber. Security company. And, and the thing I realized early on, because we thought everyone would want to buy a $6,000 appliance... What's, what's not to, what's to think about, <laughs> but, um, the thing we realized we learned early on is that our best customers were people who had been hacked. Right. Best database right? And, security sales version was the day of or after the attack. Yeah. So I started thinking maybe we should have some of our good security people go pat people. And then that's who our salespeople would call the day after. Someone told me we could go to jail for that. We didn't, we didn't do that. Do it. We did not do that. <laughs> we, did, we did not do that. But, but seriously, 
That's always well, been the problem draw, here. You can draw out the graph of adoption, right? It's it's a it's a quick spike, 100% vertical, and then it falls off rather logarithmically, right? I mean, yeah, no, it's it. crazy. But you know, one of the things we didn't have then that we have now is sort of the whole thread intel industry, right? The idea of forewarned is forearmed as best we can, given limited budgets, resources, everything else. Wendy, how much is that helping in this current environment? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Alan. I mean, we certainly like to think it's helping a lot, right? But I think you've got to parse it by, um, you know, the types of attacks. So from like a nation state actor perspective, right, we've got a tremendous amount of intelligence on that. And from a perspective of, uh, of working with organizations to give them heads up on activity, really strong there uh, as an industry, right? I'm not just speaking particular to my team. I, I think though, like when you get into threat intel, this is kind of an interesting discussion, taking it back to the Department of the Treasury and OFAC guidance in that, you know, their guidance is if you are a company who's a victim of a ransomware attack and you pay a, an actor a ransom uh, that we have imposed economic sanctions on, then you're potentially exposing yourself to fines. Well, I mean, uh, how do we actually all agree that we've got, you know, a complete threat attribution, right, on that actor, especially when these are usually yeah, like cyber criminal groups, right, that are conglomerations of probably a number of different countries, right? So I think in some cases, you know, that kind of works certainly in the organization's favor. The fact that, you know, we're still not too... Um, always a science when it comes to those things, right? And from the perspective of saying, yeah, we've got one member who maybe was part of an, from an Eastern European country or a multitude of them, and which of those countries then uh, are open to economic sanctions or, or under them, it uh, gets pretty confusing. But no doubt, I mean, you look at like the election, uh, I would say, uh, you know, and, and kind of bringing that back to a current, you know, today and yesterday type of activity. I think the fact that we went through the election without like a major takedown of, um, you know, election results of services. Certainly there was a lot of activity leading up to going into it as part of it. There's a lot of disinformation campaigns, different discussion. But the reality is, I think we uh, the United States kind of successfully thwarted a major attack on Election Day. And that was primarily due to a lot of the threat intelligence that was out there and then close coordination between uh, private and public sector organizations. So I think there's a tremendous amount of progress made there. Uh, absolutely. Sorry, Matt? Uh, say and Wendy really hit on a big point for for me what what I've seen when you when you hear people like Wendy talk and, and and Ben and team it's the ability to do that collaboration I think in the past and, and again it, this all ties to a lot of the conversations Alan you and I've had where people used to look and, and, and Ben may look at Wendy as a competitor so we're not going to share intelligence and you know you can't share intelligence with a federal agency because that could be looked poorly upon and we're starting to see in a pretty big way, the understanding in industry that we're on the same side, we we should be sharing much, much more because your success is actually my success, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, cybersecurity threat intelligence. Um, yeah, it, it always amazes me, Matt, how many people don't take advantage of resources that are out there. So, you know, InfraGuard's obviously one, right? That's that's kind of that private federal. Um, but then the ISICs, like I, I know... <laughs> It always makes me how many people aren't even aware that they exist, right? So the retail Isaac, the financial services Isaac, the IT Isaac, like if you're not participating in those organizations and doing that intelligence sharing, 
and, and getting into that closed door session where you can open the kimono, you can have the discussions with honesty, even with co competitors, um, you know, to, to protect the industry. And then, you know, outside of that, you know, carry on your normal business. I, I think you're just missing out on one of the really, uh, really successful ways that you can kind of combat some of that and get information where it's not available elsewhere. You're, you're missing the fundamentals. It's not that you're missing yes. out. You're, you're not doing the basics. It's, it's like driving without a driver's license and absolutely no education and doing this and not paying attention to the road signs. I mean, these are basic things that we should be doing. And you're right. I, but, I talked about it. But it, it, no. it's the same thing. It this happens across the industry, right? How many organizations do, don't have a CISO or a person responsible for security in the organization? How many, how many organizations don't have great management and know where their assets are? How many organizations aren't doing you know, cyber hygiene and, and patching and vulnerability management? Just because it's not the sexy stuff, like they're, they're, they're continually worried about how much budget they're spending when I think, again, the ISIC is, is not that much of an investment a company to participate in. Um, and the, and the return on investment is huge. So I, I think really it's doubling down, like you said, on those fundamental capacities, capabilities that a lot of organizations aren't taking advantage of. Yeah, and I would tell you, especially so in healthcare. Especially like, like Wendy, how many, you know, I can see major hospital systems doing it, but you know, how many hospitals really have threat intelligence service that, they're, that they've employed in the business that they do every day? Uh, I mean, it's, for most cyber hygiene in some form is there, but it, a coordinated, you know, risk management program that then drives into my operational security program, it's rare I've seen that in healthcare institutions. Yeah, I'd agree. A lot of, you know, a lot more growth, I think, needs to be done uh, in that industry, just in particular, Julian, as you mentioned, kind of the small regional facilities, right, which right. Um, deliver a lot of business, take care of a lot of patients, but just have nowhere near the budgets um, to be meeting basic requirements and then integrating threat intelligence into that, you know, I think in, in many cases goes above and beyond. Right. Oh, but quite frankly, right, this again is not a, a, a Johnny-come-lately problem. This, this is a problem we've seen. Um, a couple of things. First of all, it always seems though the security industry always talked about healthcare as a number two or three vertical after finance and or government, right? Um, they've never, they've never really. There's been few organizations that are really kind of just focused on that healthcare vertical from a cyber point of view. My friend Mike Murray used to be a GE healthcare. Is just spinning one up now. Uh, that that's going to be involved in it but it, it, it you know it's absolutely true we we've done that the other thing is and i again i realized this at the end of my still secure tenure security's hard cyber security right. is hard and when you wendy say yeah i want those mid you know smaller mid-regional healthcare providers to take seriously more to take security more seriously it's too it's too hard for them I think that at some point you got to say, do I outsource it? Is that the only way? Is that my best way to be reasonable yeah, on cybersecurity or not? Both of those points you brought up, I'll come back to money. It's a money thing, right? Like, well, gee, healthcare vendors, the industry that doesn't focus on healthcare because, like, if you go to it and you try to focus on that vertical – it's really hard to get a dollar out of that, right? That's um, exactly right. I'm not it's saying that's thing. a. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that's. that's no, no, it's true. I, I saw. It, right? I saw it firsthand. Yeah. Julian, you wanted to say something. 
No, I was agreeing with Ben. It's a really tough sale. You know, you'll you'll go through, a, a, you know, if it's enterprise software, a six nine month sales cycle, and the next thing you find out is that the budget went away because there was another priority, which was around buying some kind of medical device or something. Yeah, like a CAT that. scanner or something. Yeah. I mean, we used we had it worse. Mitchell Mitchell and I would go to hospitals trying to sell them neck, and the C, the the CIO or the chief security person would. They didn't have a chief security person, but the the head the guy who was in charge of security would love it. And then someone would say, "Wait a second, are you going to tell Doctor So and So that he can't get on with his back then? It was beepers. He can't get yeah. on with his beeper or phone because he didn't yeah. pass a knack test. Forget he'll he what happens if he doesn't want to treat patients here? We're done. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So then. So we have, one of the things we haven't talked about in this, you know, we, we talk about the devices, we talk about, you know, adversaries getting in because they're not patched, but, you know, I'd be interested in the intel everybody's seeing on, uh, we call it insider accidents, right? Try not to call it insider threat, but, you know, the accidents that, that people who are not focused on cyber do, you know, the joke we always get is everybody likes to click links for some reason. I've, I've never quite gotten it. I try to equate it to they're at, they're in Las Vegas and they like to pull the lever. Um, <laughs> but people love clicky, clicky, clicky. In healthcare, how do you train someone that may not want to be trained, that doesn't care, right? They, they don't, again, speed. It's all about speed. If they're going to see something on their phone, they're going to click it. If they, they, they're moving too fast, how do you educate? How do you train these people? When do you talk about intel? But how do I give intelligence, cyber intelligence to a, hospital administrator that's more worried about the doctor showing up to do the surgeries they need than putting barriers in. Well, I think one of the things that we focused, uh, we focused on talking to our clients about throughout the pandemic, regardless of what industry they're in, it's just the need to actually do simulation testing, right? The need to walk through these cybersecurity is not just a technical issue at this point, right? In order to have a successful response to it, you've got to bring leadership in and you've got to have different owners of, of business understand that everyone plays a part in this. So it would be, you know, I'd have that same message, right, to a healthcare organization that we've all got to realize that, you know, as a doctor, for example, they, they may own a particular type of data or um, sets of data in applications and be responsible for that. And everyone has to realize that they play a role. And ultimately, you know, the success of organizations in responding, you know, to breaches is how fast you can detect and how fast we can limit the impact of that access right well whatever the access may be into the rest of the environment and I think it's really critical that organizations um, you know understand and adopt that and just like you know I wouldn't run a marathon tomorrow without ever having you know uh, run a few miles to train for it right I wouldn't expect an organization to go through a breach the first time and do it extremely successfully right we've got to practice these things we've got to understand where some of the gaps um, exist in our environments and ideally we do that prior to an attack yeah, I think tabletops are a really great idea, Wendy. And then, um, as you said, bringing the executive teams in, right, bringing the board in, letting them actually walk through it in a, in a real-world example that's simulated, letting them understand and letting everybody get that muscle memory out to respond. I'd, I'd also, I, you know, you mentioned uh, training, Matt, and I think the way we do training is pretty poor in general. Like, it, it's really dry. It's, you know, it's like compliance training every year. Like, no one wants to go through any compliance oriented training, no matter whether it's, you know, security, IT, diversity, whatever, like just nobody likes it. 
And, and I found a couple of companies that do it more with like live action comedy. And I found humor to be a really successful way to broach that, that gap of people wanting to consume the training. Um, so I, I think like our approach to how we bring not just the board and the executives, but the day to day, you know, the nurse, the doctor, the orderly on, like, how do we bring them in to want to want to make that part of their everyday work life, right? Like just to be the awareness, raise the awareness. Some, um, I think, I think that's really key in that, like we, we haven't done the job of the psychology of our job, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's been very technical. And, and I think that's, that's failed us at the business, like going in and being able to talk business at the business. And it's right. failed us at the HR level of being able to interact with our customers. Like how often do we say, oh, that's the, you know, the stupid end user. It's like, well, the guy's not stupid. He just, he doesn't know. He doesn't have all the experience and the knowledge and the training you have. And like, we need to treat them in a different way and understand there's a psychology behind it that we need a broader spectrum at, at our management levels within security to consume that and then figure out a way to bring it out to the rest of the org. I think it was Julian who brought it up a little while ago. It's, it's people don't, it, until there's a failure, until there's that, that thing or, and you know, another thing, Julian, you and I were talking about this in one of our conversations until it becomes personal. And, and I think right. you're correct. Our, our training is very dry generally across the board. I'm not insulting Unisys or Qualys or IBM or anybody's <laughs> corporate training, but in general, it can be very dry. And it's also, I think, wrong from the start we we seem to want to have training that always ends with a pass because it makes people feel good when they pass and you don't learn that way and that julian i don't know if you want to expand on that but it's that that need to pass that that inability to accept failure especially in healthcare seems to be a big deal no because a lot of times what you have if you just deal with with doctors right many times you have doctors who are highly technical you know, they're very savvy, but they don't know anything about security. Mm. And so there's a bunch of assumptions that go into it. And unless you can somehow pull them into the process of wanting not to be the problem, they continue to be the problem. And, um, but I mean, I hate to keep going back to it. I still think that if it's not driven from the top and, uh, and, and in healthcare institutions, as you know, most doctors don't actually, they aren't employed by the hospitals they work for, they're contractors. So trying to force them to do anything can be impossible. But, you know, the usually the uh, upper management is afraid to do stuff like this because they're afraid of having the, the, you know, especially the better caregivers go to other places where they consider there to be less hurdles for getting their work done. But it's got to start at the top. Unless they change that mindset, it's just going to continue to be bad and we're going to see more and more ransomware in hospitals. No, not to make this about the election, but there's an interesting maybe lesson to learn, sort of a gamification <laughs> approach we could take to training. I saw some news programming on TV where they were showing individuals different um, uh, posts on Facebook and things. Is this a fake or is this real? And they'd vote and half the time, three-fourths of the time, they'd be close, but they'd be wrong quite a bit. And the lesson wasn't, here's how you recognize it. I think the lesson was, just don't trust it if it's not a known trusted source. That's what you really need to. You don't need to know, don't click on anything. You need to know, only trust what you know is true, you know, is a reliable resource. And that's, you know, so that gamification made it real to people without them feeling stupid because they didn't know, right? Most people are not going to be able to recognize a phishing attack that's done really well. 
Well, you know, the, the other thing I would, I would highlight and jump off of that would say, like, if, you, if you have an issue that you're trying to figure out in security and how to address it better, who do, you reach out, who do we reach out to? We reach out to people we know and other security professionals, right? And exactly. I actually think sometimes we need to reach out to people outside the industry to answer some of these problems. So I, I read an interesting article, I think it was in, in World War II, they did an analysis of uh, bombers that had flown back and where they had gotten um, hit right? Bullet holes. And so they wanted to find out where do they enhance the armor on the plane to increase the odds of the, the, the planes coming back and landing safely. And so you would naturally look at that picture and the average and say, all right, well, wherever the bullet holes hit the most is where we need to add armor. But that's counterintuitive. And it's, it's involving a bias that you have to say that those planes landed. What you really need to analyze is where don't you have any holes? Because that's the planes that actually didn't make it back. Right, And that's where you need to actually apply more armor, right? Is because the planes that made it back with those bullet holes, they, they had sustainable injuries, right? And what we need to do is leverage, I think, professions, like, again, I think, you know, psychology, um, behavioral analysis, right? Um, you know, uh, data science, right? To understand, like, the things that where we're missing this, because it's obvious, we're missing things on how we educate our end users and consumers. We're just missing that, especially in healthcare. Again, I think, you know, uh, Julian, you hit it off. Like they're not, they're not even necessarily employees of the organization, right? It's a conglomeration of these different, you know, different groups working together in this kind of body, this entity, but you, you ne don't necessarily have control over it. Exactly. It's tough. I couldn't agree more. So, um, I you know, we're coming up to the, our time. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like Alan dropped off. So we'll, we'll go close out here. I really appreciate it. And I'd love to close this conversation with some final words from everybody. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that we're trying to do with this program is impart some wisdom and some advice and maybe some tactical things that people can do um, as next steps within healthcare, within their own organizations to try to not prevent ransomware from, you know, impacting your company, but, you know, things that we can be doing as an industry to really try to help others uh, in this field. So, Mitch, I'll start with you. You know, what I take away from this from the panel is it's about people, it's about business, it's about process. Technology is in there, but that's not the thing. It, that's where rubber really meets the road is with us and treating people, dealing with the psychology, all of those things. So, that was super Super helpful. I appreciate everybody sharing that. And by the way, it makes me very happy because my degree is in psychology. So yay, <laughs> my degree. <laughs> did not know that ahead of time. But. I didn't know that either. I would love to say I did that on purpose, but I, I, I always tell people I wanted to be a psychologist until I realized I don't like listening to people. Um, ben, next. <laughs> yeah, I, and so my, my takeaway is, uh, or advice that I would give is, is plan ahead. Right? I, I think a lot of people get into these situations where they're dealing with, should I pay the ransomware? Should I pay the ransomware? Right? Like, what do we do in this situation? How do we recover quickly? And so I think you know, Wendy had brought up the tabletops. Um, I think finding a way to plan through it, ask these questions ahead of an incident happening and understand like what you're, no, things are going to change. You're going to have to call audibles, right? To, to make sure you can react. But at the same time, it's going to be a lot more calm disposition. And that's what, it, as a CISO, I think you want to bring is calmness of disposition to that, to that discussion, to be able to respond intellectually as, as opposed to emotionally. Julian? 
Uh, so my advice would be like anything with security, what's the purpose of security? It's to provide protection and, you know, a better usage of, of uh, the resources that a, a corporation or entities have. In the case of hospitals, better security equals better healthcare. And so if, if the services that you need, the technologies that you need aren't available to you, uh, you're not going to provide the same level of healthcare that you would if it was there. So it has to be an integral component to you doing the job that you do, which is helping people. I love, love it. that. Wendy? I think all of the things that have been highlighted so far are all great, right? And certainly Ben would uh, have kind of stolen from me the, <laughs> the uh, training, which I could not Sorry, agree Wendy. more with. No, all good. I, I love the, um, you know, we're hitting it kind of multiple times. But I will say, um, I certainly agree with Mitch in terms of that people are the heart of what we need to solve here, but taking it to a technical thing um, or technical tips, if you will, uh, you know, just a couple things that we see over and over again. Lack of multi-factor authentication on remotely accessible devices. That's something that every organization I think can focus on identifying and saying, all right, uh, let's let's prioritize these and then let's figure out how quickly we can get multi-factor authentication on. There's a lot of great solutions out there. Um, and then second is just backups. Having backups of your most critical data and having it available offline. Again, you know, um, we we say that different towards every organ, every industry, right? There's not one solution that's going to fit for everybody. You've got to prioritize in terms of what is your most critical data. Some of the solutions are costly, but if we can do that and have backups that aren't on the network, that don't also get encrypted when a ransomware attack occurs, the better off we're going to be in terms of not even having to have these type of discussions. You know, Wendy, you, you took mine, so I'll, I'll throw in my piece of advice, and I think we touched on a lot here. It's, it's make friends and communicate. Talk to people, join these groups, get the information, the intelligence, and get support. A lot of times within an organization, it may be hard if you're employed there to convince doctors, administrators to do something, but bringing in friends, trusted advisors, it doesn't always have to be an expensive contract. You know, I've brought in in different organizations, industry experts to have breakfast or lunch or dinner with certain leaders in an organization just to help bring that external perspective can go a long way in helping to change people's minds um, on the importance of cybersecurity. And Alan, I see your back, so I'll hand it back to you for final words. Thanks, guys. I, my my uh, machine rebooted there. I apologize. Um, yeah, but you know what? I... First of all, my final words, what a, what a panel. <laughs> what a panel. I mean, what a great discussion. I, I probably could have done this for a half a day, and we still have, would have more to talk about. But um, so thank each and every, thanks to each and every one of you. Julian, Ben, you came back. We did a redo here, you know, a part two anyway. I appreciate it. Wendy, it you, you, you really, you know, put, put the, uh, the cherry on top of this Sunday. It was, it was thank you so much. Matt, Mitchell. You know, my cohorts here, thank you. We'll be back with another CISO week in about two weeks. Another CISO talk in about two weeks. But for now, this is Alan Schimmel for CISO Talk. Hey, stay careful, stay secure out there. We'll, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye, everyone.